KYW Original Podcasts. Hey, everybody. This is Flashpoint host Cherry Gregg. First, I want to say thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the Flashpoint podcast. Welcome to the Flashpoint family. Would you do me a favor? Would you log on to the Radio.com app, Apple Podcast app, or whatever podcast platform that you use and subscribe to Flashpoint? All you got to do is search Flashpoint KYW. Now let's get to it. We are walking you through the flames. This week, the focus is maternal mortality. Women are dying, birthing babies. I remember feeling them cut my stomach and screaming really loud. The statistics in Philadelphia resemble third world countries. But why? We don't listen to women. We don't listen to black women especially. We talk causes and solutions. We dig in. Then she's been training dancers for six decades. Some kids who would never have left their neighborhood, I put them on a plane and take them to Europe. And they're dancing. Philodenko founder Joe Myers-Brown talks secession. We'll be right back. Flashpoint is sponsored by the Gift of Life donor program. Organ donors save lives. Register today at DonorsOne.org. Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm Cherry Gregg. The focus is maternal mortality. For every 100,000 live births in Philadelphia, 27 mothers die because of childbirth-related issues. And 74% of those who lose their lives are black women. The stats are similar to those in third world countries. So what's behind the disparities and why are so many women, even those with access to health care, losing their lives for giving life? With me in the studio to discuss this flashpoint is Salima McNeil. She is a reproductive therapist and CEO of Oshun Family Center. We also have Samia Bristow. She's Senior Director of Programs at Maternity Care Coalition. We have Janaea Davis. She's a mother who survived a near-fatal childbirth experience. And finally, on the phone, we have Jatola Davis. She's a certified nurse and midwife for Jefferson Health. Oh, and I want to introduce Mikey. He is going to... He's throwing a fit. He's like, whoa, you forgot He's Janaea's young son here. Thank you so much for being here, everybody. So I want to start with you, Samia. Define for me maternal mortality. Is this something that is hard to track? Data tracking has become better over the years. I think it's also something that we are still struggling with, with the lack of integrated systems of, of health care. Getting pregnancy records quick and fast still remains an issue. Mm-hmm. And trying to figure out systems that can support us and systems that can allow us to have an integrated system of care for pregnant women. Jatola, I want to bring you in here because we hear those numbers. How is that defined, those numbers? When we talk about it, we think about anyone who has had a baby and in the records that we're using, using it's usually up to 42 days after. Mm. But they did do a study. There's an entire um, coalition that basically went and said, let's look beyond that. And we know that upwards of 19 or 20 happened after the woman was Um, over six weeks postpartum. The tracking that we're doing, if you had to just click a couple of buttons, that's how you get, you know, an answer that you're looking for. But how do we add buttons to that? How do we add the fact that, you know, these deaths are happening at eight months postpartum? Or Mm -hmm. how do we add, you know, Mm -hmm. different factors that go into it? Like what else was this mother experiencing that made her at an increased risk? And we often look at one and not the other where, 
up to a year. It took someone 40 weeks to grow a human mm-hmm. being. Mm-hmm. And so it's going to take just as much time for them to recover. And what does that look like? And so there are people asking those questions to kind yeah. of answer, who are we missing? What should we be including? And is it really happening right at birth or that, you know, first week out? What we can say is after a six-week postpartum visit, you come in, we check how's breastfeeding, how's your incision, how's, you know, things healing, and then you don't see folks. And that's an issue. And so how do we change that? And so I want to um, go to you, Salima. We heard the disparities. How is this possible? I mean, it's possible because we still are being treated in a system that was not geared towards treating us in the first place. Mm-hmm. So hospital policies and practices often are trained and geared towards not necessarily supporting black women. So when we go into the hospital and we say this hurts or that hurts or I don't know what's wrong, they are less likely to treat us with pain medication and find, and sit down to understand what we are going through versus writing us off and saying, like, here is what we're going to do versus let's be collaborative about your treatment. So when we have those near-death morb- morbidities, which I am a survivor of one of them, when I say this hurts or can you help me when – I went to the hospital. They were. I was told to go sit back in the waiting area. Mm. And when they asked me what was my pain level from one to ten, I said it was a ten, and I still would stay out in the waiting area. And this was after my birth, so I had to go to a whole other hospital. And then when I got there, I was in surgery within two hours. So you say to yourself, we go into these to these institutions that are supposed yeah. to care for us, but they're hindering and they're hurting us. So what is the what is the problem? And so we often looked at those things, and that's why you see California moving towards implicit bias training. And you see mm-hmm. Illinois, Pennsylvania, yeah. um, New York, and New Jersey saying, well, let's get doulas. Doulas are amazing, but they're not the cure to systemic racism. Janae, I want to bring you in here. Hi, Mikey. He's <laughs> getting some milk there. This issue is, is very yeah. acute, so you tell me what happened to you. Unfortunately, it is scary because throughout your pregnancy journey, it's something you fear. Mm. Um, it's something that my birth mother experienced um, and is unfortunately no longer here with us. I made it full term. I was not considered a high-risk pregnancy, and I actually delivered at UPenn and made it eight centimeters dilated, natural, yeah. and was stuck at that level for seven hours. Mm-hmm. And complaining to, to nurses, to my midwife, I'm exhausted. I don't have energy to, to push. They're trying to get me to push. Um, I hadn't had an epidural, so doing this naturally was a lot on my body. Um, I hadn't eaten in over 16 hours. I think the most I had was a cup of Jello because they didn't want my sugar to get too low. Um, and unfortunately, all of the events happened so fast that my birth experience is really emotional for me because I remember very little of it. Mm-hmm. I just remember um, being at that mark of eight centimeters, them telling me, listen, we need to do something because they can no longer detect Mikey's heartbeat. Every time they couldn't detect his, then my heartbeat would go into distress. So then they wanted to insert a fetal monitor to see if they could detect his heart rate. And as they were inserting it, it was about this long. And I was already in so much pain. It was like two feet, maybe two and a half feet, yeah. And I'm already in so much pain from just contractions all day, all night. They stuck it in, still couldn't detect his heart rate. And I'm, I'm telling my midwife, I'm like, listen, please take this out. I, I can't do this. This is, this is causing me too much pain. She continued to tell me, no, just we got to try. Come on, let's try and push. They tried to get me to push. Um, at that point, my heart rate began dropping even more. 
Oh, God. I remember the midwife running out of the room to speak with my family. And at that point, it was, I described to people like a scene from Grey's Anatomy. Doctors and nurses in my room on top of my bed, on top of me, um, IVs. And I, I don't even know what was being given to me at the time. I just remember being pushed into an OR, seeing bright lights, about 50 to 60 medical professionals. Uh, my sister, Jatola, who's on the call now, um, she was trying to gain access into the OR to, um, you know, scrub in as, as a midwife to at least make sure that I had some family there and someone was able to see me through. Um, to my knowledge, she was asked to leave. So the only person in that OR with me at the time was the midwife who was trying to see me through delivery. Um, at the time, I was transferred over to the table. I remember... Feeling them cut my stomach and screaming really loud. And because just you didn't grabbing, have any, yeah. Grabbing whoever was near me. And someone was yelling, she's up, she's up. Mm-hmm. And I remember a gas mask being placed on my face. And then after that, I was out. And to my understanding, within five minutes, they were able to deliver Mikey. I'm unaware of how long I was in the OR after giving birth to him. I just remember being pushed out into recovery, my dad holding Mikey, and I was just confused. I didn't know that I had him. I didn't know what went what went on. Oh, my and gosh. that was my birth experience. And that, I can feel the trauma uh, from, she has tears in her eyes right now, just mm-hmm. recounting that moment. But you guys try your best to prevent stuff like this. So Maternity Care Coalition, we're approaching our 40th year um, anniversary, and we've been supporting pregnant women Mm -hmm. and parenting families um, in the home environment since 1989. Hearing Janae's story, you know, it's it's breathtaking. You know, my heart is over here pounding um, because she's in that place alone. Mm. And, you know, you we provide doulas uh, to our families, um, and even in a moment, you know, like that, you know, the doula faced with medical practitioners, you know, it's a very tedious situation because you want to be the, you want to be the support person for Janaea. And then you also want to be, um, you know, understanding of, you know, the medical professionals. Um, and in that situation, you know, we're there to support moms yeah. and families. You know, it's not that we want to go against the care of medical providers at all. So in situations like that, just try to communicate what the the client is sharing with us around pain or concerns that they have and just communicating that yeah. Um, yeah. by just being a voice and a support person to um, someone in that type of situation. Jatola, what was it like for you? Because you're a professional with knowledge of all the things that are happening here and to have your sister go through this. What was that like? Our little guy, who you can hear now, uh, mm-hmm. turned one in August. And it's, it's just another reality check. I see it happening all the time. But the thing that was really important to me was that I was her sister in that moment. So at every step, trying to be that, uh, you know, support. And then when I, you know, came back and this was all happening, you know, it was the moment for me to be the midwife at the side wasn't there. Yeah. And I met. Mikey when they brought him out to our family as they were finishing up with Janaea. I think the hard part is that something like this, those 
feelings, those ideas, those memories, they don't just end at six weeks. Mm-hmm. And it does take time and people meeting with you to like really work through all of that mm-hmm. and regaining trust in the system that essentially failed you and really listening. I feel like the thing that kind of we said, Salima mentioned, like, we don't listen to women. We don't listen to black women, especially. So yeah. regardless of how things actually happen, the way that my sister experienced it was the way that she experienced it. And that's right. something that's going to be with her for the rest of her life. And, and the crazy part about this is I've heard so many women of all different within different age groups, different mm-hmm. socioeconomic uh, situations tell me and my friends have told me I literally almost died right. having my child. What is it? Because too many women have had these experiences, and I I know other women who had nothing like this. Is it hospitals? Is it what? What is it? It's society, and I think you probably won't be shocked at this conversation because my delivery was exactly the same way, mm. from the eight centimeters to the emergency C section to them cutting with me being woke to being knocked out in the whole nine, and we don't know each other. So for that to be the same narrative for two strangers, two black women, two millennials having children, you have to look at a greater scale. Like what is happening here in the training of the doctors that are running these hospitals? Um, On Wednesday, there's a councilwoman, Cindy Bass, and uh, State Representative Morgan Cephas held a maternal mortality hearing at City Mm -hmm. Hall. And so these were some of the topics that were discussed. And we were very deep into, you know, the systemic racism that happens and how we're going to work to combat and better understand what the needs of our people are. So when we are up against a system that doesn't support us, we have to go around and then you have to change laws and affect policy and things of that sort for people to treat us right. And so that's ridiculous to me, but the work is going to be done and I won't stop until the work is done. And so I treat women like such, you know, after we're recovering from these traumatic birth experiences, then what, who do you go to? Where's the therapist or where's the support system? And the crazy part is you hear people talk. I've heard other friends tell me about how it was so amazing. Yes. You know, my birth experience, you know, and everybody was around. You, you know, know what, what they said? had? Midwives. They had a home right. birthing midwife. And I think that's the, the biggest difference. Midwifery practices are very, you know, traditional in how do you care for women. And that's exactly it. We, If you look at the education in our medical system, you might talk about race maybe once or twice. Wow. And the other thing that people don't talk about, and this is a word that is being buzzed about, but it's real, is implicit bias. Mm-hmm. If you think about it, people will swear up and down that they are not racist. We are afraid to be termed racist. But the fact that you go through life thinking in a certain way and that influence in the care is true regardless mm-hmm. of the way you look at it. So it is a continuous um, journey on figuring out how, mm. like, when you walk into a room, what are you bringing with you, and yes. how is this going to affect the care that you receive? Yeah. And so, th- there's an entire group of medical professionals who have to continue to do the work and know how they show up. Yeah. So l- let's pick up from the story. You you awaken. Mm-hmm. Your son is healthy. He's here. Yeah. I'm this sure was a traumatic childbirth it, it, experience. Oh my god. I've- like my entire body was hit by a car. Mm-hmm. I'm at a catheter inserted in me. Um, braces on my legs. I was completely on bed rest for 24 hours. I couldn't even pick my son up on my own. He had to be given to me to hold him because I was in that much uh, in that much pain. I think the hardest part was not being able to enjoy those first few days with him and just soaking up being a first time mom, a new mom, and preparing for this journey for the last 10 months. 
to get to this moment, you know, I had prepared with my doula a birthing plan. And my goal was to go in all natural, you know, with great advice from my sister. You know, you're a woman. This is what your body was made for. Trust your body. Labor is all mental. When you can control the mental aspect of it, just allow your so body to follow through. So this wasn't like you were unprepared. You yeah, were prepared so I thought I this. was going into yeah, to labor prepared. prepared. And I had to have a very real conversation with myself when my doula asked me to prepare a birth plan. And I had to be realistic and say a lot of women don't come back from childbirth. Mm-hmm. A lot of women that don't come back are black women. God forbid I do not make it. This is who I want my son with. Save his life. When I had that conversation with myself, I knew it was real. And at this point, anything could happen. And then going into my labor experience, kind of flying through those first few hours, I'm thinking, oh, wow, okay, I'm on plan. This is, this is great. And then once things started to take a turn, I feared my life as Everything was literally a domino effect starting to happen. And it was so bad, my midwife even came to my room the following day and apologized because she knew she was wrong. She said, you asked me to take it out. I told you no. I should have listened to you. Initially, I was just thanking God that me and my son were here to see see another day. But what do you say to someone who got you in a situation where it was literally a matter of your life and your son's life? I mean, and now they're coming to apologize. It's like, as as much as I can appreciate you accepting and acknowledging you're wrong in this situation, it doesn't change yeah. that birthing experience that I had with my first child. Right. Yeah. And now, you know, society is like, oh, you're a champ. You can get back out there and do it. Go have some more kids. But it's not that easy because naturally there's a fear instilled in you. If I go through this again, will I make it out? And the numbers in Philly... Uh, the numbers, um, especially among black women, are like we in a third world country. Mm-hmm. Uh, they do better yet, than us. We in America. Right. <laughs> Is there an effort to change this? You know, I think a lot of people ask that same question, like, what can we do? And I think that's a great question to yeah. ask. But I just want to say that there's not one thing that has to be done mm-hmm. to solve this issue. Mm-hmm. There's a multi-layer approach that needs to take place. Number one, we need to review our health system, cultural sensitivity, diversity training is needed for medical practitioners, for other non-medical staff within the healthcare system. We need to um, think about integrated approaches, um, policies with um, our healthcare systems. We need to, it's a multi-layer approach that has to be done. And it's not just one thing that can be done to solve this. We have to acknowledge, you know, you know, the institutional racism and trauma that has been done and really redesigning things and let the people speak to what's needed. You know, the first contact of making an appointment, you know, how is that that caregiving? Um, And that's the gateway to having a good patient care relationship. Mm-hmm. Y'all are women who had the the care. You were going to your appointments. Everyone. You did all the things you were supposed to do. But still, but fail. still, when the moment came and it was time to execute on these plans, things were done that jeopardized lives. This is a very scary proposition for a lot of 
women considering motherhood uh, who are expected moms. All of this happened during childbirth. There's women who passed away three weeks after childbirth mm-hmm. because of blood clots or, or something mm-hmm. else. Could we talk about that a bit? The thing about midwives is that we try and see the whole person. Mm-hmm. And we literally look at you and say, so who's your team? What is going home with the baby going to look like for you? And the biggest thing with us is there is never a time that you can't call your midwife. 24 hours a day, we are there to answer your questions. There is no silly question. I think people are often faulted because they miss those six-week appointments. But like I said from the beginning, it took you a year almost to grow this human being. So it's going to take at least that much time for you to recover. And recovery isn't just physical. There is the mental aspect, you know, even for folks who have, you know, the birth that they expected, there are still things that can come up afterwards. And so one of the most important things that we say as midwives is who's going to be there, you know, afterwards, you know, Jabina Coleman, who's a lactation and so on, says everyone cares about the mother, but who everyone cares about the baby, but who's caring about the mother. And that's so true. It's like, how do we bring this person into the fold for that time after that final visit? And that's the question that we continue to answer. And then how do you provide access to that? Because most insurance cuts off at 60 days. Mm -hmm. So then what do you do? Your baby's covered, but you're not. Mm -hmm. Wow. Wow. And just to piggyback, that postpartum or AKA that fourth trimester of pregnancy is Mm -hmm. very real and it gets ignored a lot of the times. And that's where women start to find themselves slipping into postpartum depression. Me personally, I slipped into it because I had this traumatic birth experience. I'm at home with a newborn, absolutely no clue how to make sure this human is alive the next day. Mm-hmm. Uh, breastfeeding was a struggle in the beginning because he wasn't latching um, as, as fast as I'd hope he would. So it's very easy to have thoughts that to most people you would think it's not natural to think this way about your child or about your experience, but because of all of those issues that you've endured and you've never, you've just kind of built it up, built it up, and you've never had a chance to just kind of let it all out and express yourself, you snap. And it does take a long time to recover. Mikey's a little over a year, and I'm just now starting to feel like myself again. Mm -hmm. Mentally, emotionally. That's where I come in at with, the mm-hmm. initiative that I just launched under my organization, which is the Maternal Wellness Village. So Jamina mm-hmm. is, uh, is a part of that as a lactation consultant <laughs> and a therapist. So what I've done is I've formulated this group of 10 black birth workers to help in that fourth trimester. So we have mm-hmm. doulas, lactation consultants, and then mental health professionals. And so we are able to meet the person where they are, whether it's coming to my office and they can get a meeting with all three or we go out to them. So creating that continuum of care and really honing in on the fourth trimester, it is our greatest desire and our mission to help circumvent some of those outcomes. Yeah. And because this is Flashpoint, we do have to wrap this up. I want to leave people with some resources, some ideas on what they should be thinking about, some questions they could be asking as they go through this journey of motherhood. The thing that I always say is don't be afraid to ask a number of questions whenever you go into your provider's office because the reality is midwives take care of usually healthy women like that's that's the thing that we do healthy birthing folks but I want y'all to go into your visits with a list of questions and do not let your provider out the door until they answer them utilize your online portal and utilize the support around you I always talk about building the folks around you and it doesn't have to be oh, choose a midwife or a doula, we all can be a part of the team. Thank you, Salima. 
Yes, I think um, you should have resources for the postpartum phase. So you have postpartumsupport.net that can help you out with um, evaluating some of the symptoms, whether it's baby blues, postpartum depression. You have OshunFamilyCenter.org, which is my organization, where the initiative for the Maternal Wellness Village is under it as well. And then you have all the services that can be connected from your doulas to your um, lactation consultants. And to understand that there's a village out here for you, you just have to access those resources because we're here. We're here. There you go. And there are a number of home visiting programs across the city, including Maternity Care Coalition. If you are pregnant or have a young child, um, parenting families, birth to age three, reach out. There are home visitors that could meet you where you are. Um, We have breastfeeding and doula support services. We provide health education, home visits, intense home visits, connect to prenatal and postpartum care we're here. There's a ton of different home visiting programs throughout the city. Janae, a final word. Even when you feel alone, you are not alone. There are women uh, out here wanting to see you survive. Um, and most importantly, trust yourself. God made you to bring life into this world. So once you understand that, you believe that, just know that he's going to follow through with you and see you and your child through to the end. Thank you to Samia Bristow. Thank you to Jatola Davis. Thank you to Salima McNeil and to Janaya Davis for coming on Flashpoint and talking about this Thank important issue in the news. Next up, she spent the past 60 years training dancers. Now she's creating the plan for the next generation. Well, I'm never going to retire, retire. You know, I just want to step back. <laughs> Philly legend Joe Myers-Brown lays out the secession for Philadelphia. We'll be right back. When we're out of time to give you the backstory, there's Scroll Down, the new podcast from KYW. Quality pre-K programs, not just ones that provide daycare. Case is, is three years old now, but we have not forgotten. And at the very end, I gave her a hug. I was in tears, and she whispered in my ear, everything I told you, it was a thousand times worse. What you didn't hear on air, from the KYW team ready to tell all. Search Scroll Down on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Hey guys, listen up. When you're done with the show, would you do me a favor? Please provide a review and rate this podcast. And feel free to provide feedback often. We need reviews to push us to the top. Now back to the show. Thanks all. This is Flashpoint, where we talk about the issues that get everyone hot and bothered. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. And one thing that gets our residents hot under the collar is when our Philadelphia institutions fail to get their due. And Philadelphia, well, that is an institution here, and it's been in the headlines throughout the past several weeks, kicking off a year-long celebration of 60 years for the Philadelphia Dance School and 50 years for Danko. Both were founded by the one and only Joe Myers-Brown. Now in her 80s, she has laid out her secession plan Ms. Joan Myers-Brown, welcome to Flashpoint. I thank you for having me. So you've been jet-setting in the month yes, of October. Yes, running because company's been on tour a lot. We're in, out, and running. Congratulations. You're kicking off this wonderful celebration. What are you looking forward to most? Well, mostly to turning the administrative work over to someone else so I don't have to spend a lot of time smoozing and running around and trying to find money and trying to keep things going. So I just like working with the dancers and being close with them and just doing more artistic things than administrative. Yeah, you've named an interim executive director. Exactly. One of my former dancers who went to Temple while she was in the company and got her Ph.D. Mm-hmm. And so she's been running the dance program at several colleges across the country. Also, I shipped her out of here and she danced with the Urban Bush women. And so she's ready. 
Yeah, she's ready to she's take ready. over. Yeah. And you've been putting a lot of things in place um, to sort of make sure that Philodenko is going to be strong in the future. Congratulations on the Mellon Grant. Well, actually, a lot of them fell into place at the same time. Doris Duke Foundation, PNC, and so many others, the NIFA Dance Touring Program. So we got everything just sort of fell in place at the right time for me so that I feel that we are able to move ahead and not worry, you know, how we're going to make it at least for one year. Yeah. And so this is like, this is several hundred thousand dollars altogether. Well, it's almost, I think it's over half a million dollars, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. But the, the kickoff was actually the Doris Duke Foundation. They gave us a big grant first. Yeah. Right. And so what does that do? Because I know that um, bringing in grants had been a long time issue with you. You said, you know, look, Black dance organizations, black arts organizations have a hard time getting these grants. Does it shift the tide for Danko? Well, actually not, because being black in America is being black in America. Come mm-hmm. on, the, the, uh, all the equity and inclusion. I've been talking about that for the last 70 years, yeah. before I started my company. That, And it's a mechanism in my site to raise money for other institutions because the activity really isn't happening. It's a lot of talk. And so we're hoping that that changes. I've been trying to get black girls in ballet companies for the last 50 years. Mm -hmm. And we still here in our city only have one. You know, so things, come on, let's let's be honest. There's still work to do. And as long as I'm able, I'm going to try. And so let's go back to 60 years ago when you started the dance school. Why did you create it? Well, I was doing nightclub work, and I really wanted to be a ballet dancer. And they weren't weren't hiring black girls in ballet companies. And they're still not doing what they should. I mean, ballet companies should look like America. There shouldn't be just black girls. There should be more Latino girls. I want to reach back and try to find the Native American girls who used to do ballet. They were the first ballerinas in the country. So, you know, we have to make sure that there is inclusion, not just conversation. But 60 years ago, I uh, was dancing with Pearl Bailey in a nightclub. I woke up one morning and I said, it's not what I want to do. Let me help someone else. Mm-hmm. So I started my school with all the little kids in my neighborhood, my mother's girlfriend's kids, and they kept growing from there. Yeah, and then you created Danko to give all those dancers that you trained a place to perform and exactly. a way to tour the world. That is secondary. Training is most important mm-hmm. because the benefits of dance training and the opportunity to study and really be involved with dance is important. Look at Blondell Reynolds Brown. She's yes. a dancer, you know. And Gaynell used to be a dancer, but now she's an executive. She's run she, the Virginia Commonwealth College. She was head of the dance department. She was a black woman, and, and, and the only black woman there, and running the department. Mm-hmm. But she contributes her dance training and focus and discipline is what put her on the path to what she wanted to do. And I want to encourage more of our youngsters to think of dance as a vehicle, not just entertainment. And the mamas are caught up in, let's do competitions and show off. It's more to it than that. It's beneficial. And you've been passionate about this consistently. Never change. Never change. And you've put literally your blood, sweat, and tears into Philodanko, your own money. My Social Security check now. Every month it goes right to Philodanko. And what has kept your passion? It's about children who yeah. say, this is, I would like to do that, I want to do that. You want to make sure that they get the best of what you can give them, not just, you know, think of it as a 
way to make money or as a way to keep people happy with their kids showing off. You want to make sure that they realize that it is a vehicle for a better lifestyle. Mm-hmm. And you were just given the very prestigious Bessie Award for Lifetime Achievement. Yeah. Well, that's, what was that like? It's like the Bessies in dance is like the Tonys or the Emmys. You know, so it was exciting. One of my girls, two of my girls here had gotten Bessie Awards. And also I got a Bessie for forming the International Association of Blacks in Dance. So I said, okay, I'm a Bessie girl. I've yeah. gotten all the Bessies. But that was wonderful, yeah. And you've done so much um, in dance. Um, and so the Danko is currently set up for the future. How would how do you envision the future of this important dance company, not just to the city of Philadelphia, but to the country and dance well, generally? I think, well, next year there was a lag in uh, touring for us and, and dance in general. The touring is picked up. We're in Europe in the whole month of March. We're in Germany, Switzerland. And then we come back and do the Kimmel, and then we go back to England, and then we come back. And, you know, so being able to tour and take the kids, some kids who would never have left their neighborhood, I put them on a plane and take them to Europe, and, you know, and they're dancing. So for me to keep that happening for them and making opportunities is important, and having someone who is as passionate as I am about not just the company but about dance is important. Uh, my daughter's involved. She's here with me all the time. She runs the two schools we have. So it, it, it'll continue. Yeah. It'll continue. Organizations like Danko, when they have such a formidable head like yourself, what do you think the biggest challenge will be sort of as you transition? Because I understand you're going to be retiring. Well, I'm never going to retire, retire. You know, I just want to <laughs> step back. You know, I think, I don't know, I wouldn't like just being home all the time doing nothing. Mm-hmm. So, again, having two schools, four companies, and good health, no reason to just stop. But I think there is preparation for the future and having people who are equipped to do what the job requires and having me still with their backs, mm-hmm. I think is important. You have to open the door slowly, mm-hmm. prepare other, someone else to walk in. Yeah, and what do you see as being the biggest challenges? Because, like you said, it's only one Danko in in the city, and you would think that there would have been, you know, more um, dance companies created. Well, I don't know. I I think there are the possibility, because at least eight or nine girls I've trained have schools here, Mm -hmm. and they all have uh, what they call companies. I mean, having a company is different from having a company. Yeah. You know, all the paperwork, all the compliances, all the fundraising. Most of them just have kids dancing. And it's different because having a company is an organization. It's a business. It's just not jumping on the stage. So I think uh, with the International Association of Blacks in Dance, we're building a program called The Next Generation, a COHA that's also funded by Mellon to train the next generation of dancers and teachers and choreographers. So we're moving in that direction. We're not just hoping that someone does it. We want to make sure they're doing it right. The IABD conference is here in January. Mm -hmm. uh, We're expecting at least 1,000 people, and it started with six of us. Wow. And 30 companies will be here, and we'll do 33 classes a day right here in Philly. We're going to be headquartered at the Doubletree. So... It's 32 years of IABD that I started, and it's still going. So 2020 is a big year. Yep. Mm-hmm. 2021 is going to be a big year, too, because we're going to make it continue. 
Yeah, just keep pushing. Just tell me, what is one of your favorite performances for Danko? Well, you know, when we did the program with Leslie Odom, who was also one of my dancing boys mm-hmm. around here, I went back to get the choreographers who have worked with me consistently. Yeah. And there's a ballet that we do called Enemy Behind the Gates. That's everybody's favorite. But when we go more in the balletic field, I like La Valls, which is a neoclassical ballet. And they, people, when they see Philadelphia, don't expect that from us. They expect us, you know, because we're black to be hot and popping. And we always pull out the ballet on them. Mm-hmm. So I like doing that. I, Lee Daniels is going, one of my dancers. He's coming. Lee Daniels. He's going to be with me next year. And Shirley Ralph is going to. So I got three amazing co-chairs of the 20th anniversary. We're going we're to kick it off. It's going to be big. It's going to be big. By the time we get to Lee... Maybe all the other stuff will be gone, and we'll make it big. Yeah, as we close this out, what do you want people to know about Philodanko and the legacy that you've built um, and that are still building right now? Well, you know, I think just the fact that we need the community to still stand behind us and support us, and it's very hard in our community to know people to know that you have to reach back, you have to share, you have to support all of our organizations, the museum, Freedom Theater, all of us struggle. If something goes wrong with Philodanko, they say it's mismanagement. Something goes wrong with the orchestra or the ballet, somebody writes a check. So we have to make that equal for all of us, get the same amount of support. Yeah, and I assume you accept donations. All the time. <laughs> and I'm, I'm, I'm quite fortunate, even when the big money doesn't come in, Lomax Foundation and the Stockton Rush Bottle, those local smaller foundations make sure they still support us. Mm-hmm. It's not always about the big money. It's yeah. the consistent support. You always put your skin in the game and show people that this is, this is where it is. Yeah, but fortunately I have the schools, and the schools enable me to reach back in, into my own pocketbook and support the company when times are lean. And I'm glad to do that. It's like paying your kids college education. You hope it turns out okay when they graduate. Yeah, so. and it looks like it's turning out okay. Yeah, doing good. Well, thank you so much, Joan Myers-Brown. Well, I thank you for talking about it. I don't get a chance to say it for real often. So I'm happy to do that. Next up, they're working to clean up our region's creeks. Hicks up dirt and oil. A nonprofit's effort to curb runoff. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm Cherry Gregg. Be sure to subscribe to the Flashpoint Podcast. You can find it on the Radio.com app, Apple Podcast app, or other platforms. All you got to do is search Flashpoint KYW. And we here at KYW, we are all about community. And one organization is making an impact by connecting the community to their creeks. They serve the Philadelphia, Sheltonham, and Abington area. And the goal is to improve the health of local streams and watershed by using education, restoration, and taking action. Here to tell us more about the Tucani Taconi Frankfurt Watershed Partnership Incorporated is Executive Director Julie Slavitt. Welcome to Flashpoint. Thank you so much for having us. So you guys have a, a name that has a mouthful. We do. But it's important to explain it because it gives us a sense of place. Mm. And the word Tukani and Tukoni is from a Lenape word. Like a lot of place names yeah. and creeks and rivers, you know, it got translated in Montgomery County to Tukani and the city, you know, Philly's always a little different. So it became Tacconi. Um, and what it means is it means sort of the woods, a hidden place. So it's a really beautiful name yeah. for a creek and a watershed. And you guys have been around as an organization for nearly 20 years now. Yes. 
Tell we me, are. like, why why did you start? So we started because of, of a lot of planning and a lot of pe- community people coming together to figure out what the challenges were for the watershed and what the opportunities were. Um, so we're an organization that works across this geography, this 30-square-mile geography, and we don't just focus on the city. We focus on the community that's in the watershed upstream, mm. too. So the headwaters are in Abington, Jenkintown, and Cheltenham, and the water flows into Philadelphia. So we're all connected that way. Um, and people came together to try to figure out ways to improve creeks um, and their parks. You know, the idea was that you have to work together to do that. Yeah. And so there are some challenges that we're facing environmentally that are impacting our creeks. There are. So the major challenge for most of the waterways now and waterways in southeastern Pennsylvania is runoff. It's the stuff that runs off streets and sidewalks Mm -hmm. um, and picks up dirt and oil and salt when we salt the roads. Um, And that's really the biggest source of pollution. In Philadelphia, our creek and the Delaware and the Schuylkill also receive combined sewage overflows. Wow. Because 60% of the system was built that way. And as we've developed every place, the system can't handle what comes off the street as runoff and what comes out of homes as combined sewage. That impacts a lot of things. It really does. And we're lucky because the city does a good job cleaning our water. Mm. So, you know, in Philly, the water, our drinking water comes from the Schuylkill and the Delaware River. Um, but it would be great if the water was cleaner starting further up um, than having to spend more money further downstream cleaning it up. And we really oversalt our roads because we're worried about people getting hurt in, you know, mm-hmm. in car accidents. So one of the cool things that we do is we do a lot of citizen science and we do something called the Salt Watch that people can actually do across the watershed where they use kits to test the water in their creek and they can go online and upload that information. We did this last year. There was a lot of interest in it because what happens is the creeks really get impacted further down after this, like later than when the salt really hits. The roads get treated, then the snow melts, and it takes a while for the salt to get into the creeks. But it's one really big way that our creeks get impaired. Yeah, You're also involved in the banning of the plastic bag debate that is happening right now. Right. You know, we are trying to clean up our watershed and we see a lot of plastic bags Mm. and plastic bottles and they clog up the city's recycling equipment. You know, you see them in trees and in the creek. Really, it's a terrible form of litter. They really impact wildlife and different kind of fish that really impacts them. And then, you know, they're made out of fossil fuels. Plastic comes from oil, and we are hoping that what um, ends up coming out of city council will be a really impactful piece of legislation that really makes it so that people are not incentivized to use plastic and that there's a way for people to get reusable bags. We were talking a little bit off mic saying, you know, a lot of times you go to a store, they'll double bag you for, you know, a loaf of bread. And a lot of it can get very wasteful. It's really wasteful. Yeah. And so what is your vision for the watershed? Our vision for the watershed is that it's clean. The creeks are fishable and swimmable. You know, it took a few hundred years to really mess things up. Um, and it's going to take a while to clean them. Um, but over time, we'll really solve the runoff problem. That'll help us also com- solve the combined sewage problem. So people will really be able to go down to their creeks and stick their feet in and catch fish and show their kids, you know, turn over rocks and see that the creeks are actually healthy. 
that there's, you know, bugs in them that are good bugs and that attract a lot of birds and wildlife. Yeah, we got to remember our nature here, right? Even though a lot of folks are city dwellers, there's a lot of nature around us and in our suburban areas as well. And so you guys um, are pretty busy and active. You have a, a weekly running group. We do. So um, we have a running group once a week, and we also have a walking group twice a week because people like to get out into nature. Yeah. Um, they need exercise. They need fresh air. And people like to do it together. And and you also have, for folks who want to learn more, you have workshops and other things. We have a lot of programs. We do regular cleanups and regular plantings. Once a month, we do a um, sort of a maintenance and a cleanup in Abington or Cheltenham or Jenkintown in our upstream communities. Um, we always participate in Love Your Park. Yes, and that's coming up. That is coming up. It's November 9th. Mm. Um, it's from 10 to 12 in the morning and we'll be in Taconi Creek Park that day. We'll be cleaning up. We're also going to be planting some trees. And we have some artists that are going to be joining us to do some hands-on um, art around trees and birds. Wonderful. So if people want to connect and get involved to help improve our watersheds, how can how can they do that? They can call us at 215-744-1853. Our website is ttfwatershed.org. Wonderful. So I want to say thank you to you, Julie Slavet, Executive Director of the Tucani Taconi Frankfurt Watershed Partnership Incorporated. Check them out at ttfwatershed.org. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. That's it for the Flashpoint Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this exclusive content. Follow us on Twitter. Our handle is Flashpoint Show. You can also follow me at Cherry Gregg. If there's an issue that makes you hot under the collar, let us know. I will walk you through the flames. As midwifery expert Barbara Katz Rothman once said, birth is not only about making babies. It's also about making mothers. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. Until next week, thanks for listening.